Welcome to another episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this show I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Today's episode is on smart nanomaterials and the way we can use them to store renewable fuels such as hydrogen. If you enjoy this or any of my previous conversations, then please consider heading over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating. More than anything else, this helps to spread the word about the show because we get recommended to more people. If you're interested in exploring additional aerospace-related podcasts, I can highly recommend the Flight Audio and Video Group on Facebook, which has an extensive repository of aerospace-related podcasts and is updated almost daily. We'll begin the show in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. If you're an engineering business that could benefit from new materials and manufacturing processes, then SAMPI might be the ideal partner for you. SAMPI is the only technical society that provides enhanced educational opportunities, knowledge transfer, and professional engagement in all fields of materials and processes. To find out how SAMPI can provide your business with growth and educational opportunities, visit SAMPI's website at nasampe.org or consider attending one of SAMPI's conferences such as the SAMPI Technical Conference and Exhibition hosted in sunny Long Beach, California in May this year. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Today I'm talking to Dr. Valeska Ting. Valeska is a reader or associate professor in smart nanomaterials at the University of Bristol and is researching the use of nanoporous materials for hydrogen storage. Using hydrogen as a fuel source has many benefits. Due to its excellent energy density, hydrogen has long been hailed as an alternative to fossil fuels. Renewable energy from solar panels or wind turbines is intermittent and therefore needs to be stored conveniently. Batteries are of course one way to store the electricity generated from these sources directly, but another solution is to convert electricity into hydrogen. When hydrogen is combusted as fuel, it still produces a greenhouse gas in the way of water vapor but it does not produce any of the polluting gases such as nitrous oxides. One of the challenges of storing hydrogen is its low density, meaning that large volumes are required to store efficient amounts of hydrogen to be able to use it as a fuel. If you've ever seen the space shuttle, then you might remember the big orange tanks that were strapped to the shuttle on the launch pad. These were the containers that stored the hydrogen for the shuttle's booster rockets, and the size of these hydrogen containers significantly impacted the mass and cost of the shuttle. So no matter if hydrogen is to be used as a fuel source on future rockets, on passenger cars, or on airliners, a means of storing the hydrogen in a more dense fashion is required. This is precisely where Valeska's research enters the picture. The nanoporous materials that Valeska is working on can increase the density of hydrogen by a factor of a thousand, and therefore provide a key stepping stone towards more efficient hydrogen-powered vehicles. In this episode, Valeska and I talk about multiple aspects of this technology, including what nanoporous materials are and how they work, how they can be used to create multifunctional materials, and what scientific challenges she is addressing with her work to scale up and improve their performance. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Valeska Ting. 
Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Valeska Ting, who is a reader or an American parlance, I guess we would say, an associate professor in smart nanomaterials at the University of Bristol. Welcome to the podcast, Valeska. Oh, thanks. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> so from what I've read, you've got quite a broad and multidisciplinary background. And um, so to kick things off, I just wanted to know a bit more about your background and how you ended up being a, a reader in smart nanomaterials at the University of Bristol. Right. Uh, well, I guess I've always been interested in materials. So my first degree was in advanced materials. And uh, from there, I went to Australia to do a PhD in inorganic uh, chemistry because I, I was working in photocatalytic materials for hydrogen production. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, after that, I thought I might as well come to the UK because we, we used a lot of um, large scale facilities, things like synchrotrons and, and nuclear sources. And so I thought it would make more sense to be based in the UK. So I came over and did a postdoc in, in chemistry in Southampton and then thought, well, I, I was interested in the materials, but if you want to, to use them for anything, you need to be able to scale them up. So then I turned to chemical engineering as a way of, of applying these, these cool materials to real world problems. And then from, from chemical engineering at Bath, uh, I I have always lived in Bristol, so I decided right. to move uh, to Bristol and become part of mechanical engineering because there's a real materials focus here. And so that's where I am. All right. So I was actually, I did my undergraduate at Bath. So All I guess right. we've, got okay. a, yeah. we've got a shared history there. <laughs> so yeah, before we delve into some of the topics of your research, I just want to cover some basic definitions for our listeners so that we've got kind of like a common ground of, of what we're talking about. So first of all, what is a smart material? And then specifically, what does the prefix nano refer to in, in that sense? Okay, well, um, I guess smart materials, it, it's quite a broad term. So anything that uh, where you have a function that's controllable, I suppose. So that it encompasses things like uh, responsive materials. So you can have a stimulus and then, and then provoke a response from the material. Uh, or you can put a current through it and then then get some sort of uh, some sort of change or an output. Uh, the nanomaterial side, so that that just means when you're you're talking about a nanomaterial, it has at least one dimension that's on the the nanometer length scale. So it's it's very small, and uh, and those sorts of materials tend to have different properties than materials in the bulk. And is that why, so the different properties, is that why researchers are so interested in it? Because I guess we've, we're hearing lots about nanomaterials. And uh, in engineering, it sounds like we're trying to control all these, uh, the, the matter at such a small length scale. Why are researchers interested in applying nano to engineering? Well, you're, you're right that like, if you have a nanomaterial, uh, it's, it's this difference in properties. So if you have uh like glass for example it's um if you if you have bulk glass then you know if you hit it with a hammer it'll shatter mm -hmm. but if you have uh if you draw this glass into a, a thin thin fiber it becomes very flexible um if you get a a, a nano uh like a a, a nano particulate of, of glass it'll bounce so so the properties become quite different uh you can get things like uh gold nanoparticles for example if you change the size of the nanoparticle, it'll change the color dramatically. So, mm -hmm. so you can get anything from, from blue to red to green. Uh, and you can make materials that become transparent uh, when, when they're on the nanoscale. 
So all of these very different properties mean that uh, you have a, a broad spectrum of, of different properties to play with using existing materials. Right, and then perhaps one aspect of that spectrum is then perhaps being able to, as you, as you said, being able to add different functionalities into the material that if you pass a current through it, something interesting happens afterwards. Perhaps yeah. that is one aspect of a, of a smart nanomaterial in, in that in that sense yeah absolutely and and so it just it just broadens our our palette of available um, materials and properties and this is just by changing the the length scale so the size of it so i i think that's quite cool yeah so yeah. now you've you've recently um you, you got an epsfc research fellowship um and in energy materials and i was just curious about what is the context of this research in terms of the, the energy challenge that we're facing in, in the next couple of deca decades? Um, well, I, I think the, the problem of energy is, is a huge one that affects everyone. So the, the crux of it is that we're relying uh, globally on fossil fuels. And we know that, uh, that these are quite limited in supply. We dig them out of the ground. And then when we burn them, uh, for example, burning oil or, or uh, coal, then we produce pollutants that degrade air quality and contribute to global warming. So the idea is that we, we need to be moving away from these sorts of uh, polluting fossil fuel sources of energy and towards, um, I, I suppose, lower carbon and renewable sources. So things like solar power, wind power, uh, we want to be producing green electricity, for example. Um, but so one of the problems with with doing this uh, and, and relying on, on solar power and wind power is that it's very hard to store electricity on a, a large scale. So on, on a grid, grid scale, for example. Uh, and so we need to develop materials that can, uh, for one, one part, generate uh, renewable energy. On another part, they, they can store renewable electricity efficiently. And we also need materials to help us use or convert this energy into uh, a useful form. So energy materials, it's just really any materials that can help us use and convert energy efficiently. Mm -hmm. So I guess fossil fuels are quite energy dense, which I think to me, that's basically mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the main advantages. What is the potential of renewable energies in terms of replacing fossil fuels? So you just talked about maybe perhaps one of the disadvantages is that it's a lot harder to store um, a renewable energy, perhaps from a solar panel or from, from a wind turbine. But what is the, the absolute potential? Is this an easy goal or is it even realistic to try to replace fossil fuels with renewables? Oh, absolutely. So when you talk about energy density of fossil fuels, um, you're right in some contexts. But if you look at something like uh, renewably generated hydrogen, so per kilo, Hydrogen will contain three times the energy of, of petrol, for oh, example. Wow. So uh, when you're talking about energy density, you can absolutely surpass um, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, in terms of, uh, of being able to generate uh, renewable or sustainable energies, I think that this is absolutely a, a, a tractable goal because you have so many ways that you can generate renewable energy. So we, we mentioned solar and wind, but there's also things like like biodiesel or, or um, uh, production of uh, like catalytically converting uh, feedstocks into liquid fuels. There are 
there's geothermal, there's hydrothermal, so a lot of different ways that you can generate uh, renewable energy. And so I, I think by using diverse sources like this, then there's no reason that we couldn't supplant fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So going back to the, to the storage issue, so you then envisage, or you're currently working on using hydrogen as a means of storing mm -hmm. the electricity that we create. From or that we yeah, create from solar panels and, and wind turbines or other sources. And how, why is hydrogen a good idea or a good way of, of storing the electricity? Well, one of the advantages of hydrogen is that, well, it, as I mentioned, it's a very uh, gravimetrically dense fuel in terms of energy. But then as well, if you burn it in a combustion engine or use it in a, a fuel cell vehicle, it's very efficient and it doesn't produce any pollutants. So if you, the, the example I give is always, uh, if you see the fuel cell vehicles in London, then out of the tailpipe, you, you don't get any sort of carbon dioxide emissions or, or pollutants. It just regenerates water as it uses the hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So it's a potentially fully sustainable, low carbon fuel source. Um, the other advantage is that you can make hydrogen from water. So water is H2O. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you if you pass a current through water, you can break it down into the hydrogen and oxygen constituents and collect the hydrogen, put it into a tank, and then be able to to use to store that energy and use it when you want it. Uh, so the advantage of using hydrogen as a fuel source is that everyone has access to to water, so they can generate it. Um, if you use renewably generated electricity, uh, then it's a, a low carbon uh, energy source. And we also have ways of using it efficiently. So most of the building blocks are already there for us to be able to take advantage of this. Right. So you basically use, we have, if we have electricity on the grid, you could basically pass that electricity through water in this case, and you would split the atoms, have hydrogen and oxygen, and you can then store that in, in a very neat, neat, neat way. Now, what you've been working on is using uh, nanoporous materials to store hydrogen. And I'm just trying to imagine what a nanoporous material looks like. And what I'm thinking of is kind of like the arrow chocolate bar that we have in the UK, yeah. maybe at a larger <laughs> scale, or perhaps a water sponge. But I, I'm sure that that is not a, a good analogy. What is, how would, should listeners think about a nanoporous material? Um, well, you're actually not far off with the, the aero chocolate and the water sponge. So so things like uh, um, activated carbons, for example, can be made nanoporous materials. So so that means that they have pores on, on the angstrom or nanometer length, length scale. And these are disordered pores. So it would look at a microscopic level. It would look like a, a porous sponge. Um, but the, the key to this is the size of the pores. So if you get the pores small enough, then these these nanoporous materials will spontaneously suck in and, and store gases. Um, but coming back to your, your question, what do they look like? So they can, can look like disordered pores, but you can also get crystalline materials that are nanoporous. Uh, so what some of them would look like, the, the highest surface area materials at the moment in terms of nanoporous materials are things called metal organic frameworks and they're also known as uh, molecular lego because um, what you have is is metal nodes and organic linkers and they they fit together like lego and you you create pores by by creating a 3d framework 
if you think of uh, the frame of a building with a, a lot of girders and, and empty space, but it's very regular, mm -hmm. then if you shrink that down to the, the nanoscale, then you've got an idea of what some of these right. materials look like. Okay. Uh, no, yeah. I think I can, I, I can imagine. I mean, even, yeah, the, 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 the sponge analogy, I guess, as you said, probably works uh, as well. <laughs> but so how, if I, if I now imagine a sponge at the nanoscale, if I had a bulk of this material, would it still look like anything around me, like a piece of wood or a piece of metal? Because the, I imagine these pores to be very, very small. So does it still look like any normal material, just that it has these little perforations on a very, very small scale? Yeah, so, so these, um, these holes are too small to be seen with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. So if you were looking at the material, it would just look like the bulk material. Right. So if you were looking at an activated carbon, it would just look black, like a, like a normal carbon. Uh, so most of these materials are either in powder form or you can make them into, uh, into different shapes and you would never know that they're nanoporous until you looked at their properties or you looked at them under a microscope. Mm -hmm. So you could potentially then use them as a, as a material to, to, to build structures. So you could imagine having a, I don't know, car chassis built out of a nanoporous material where you can then also use the chassis not only as a framework to, to resist load, but also just to store the hydrogen. Would that be possible? Yeah, yeah, there's no reason why not. Uh, and the, the good thing about that is you're, you're bringing this concept of multifunctionality into your materials. So they're not only comprising a, a fun, uh, or a structural component, but you can get them to perform another function as well. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's like two materials for the price of one. Right. Okay. And so now how do these nanoporous materials actually store the hydrogen? So you said it was, they were very, very good at attracting gases, but how, mm -hmm. how do they actually go about, about storing the hydrogen? So uh, coming back to the basic chemistry, if you think of any surface and any gas molecule, then there'll be an attraction between the two of them. So gas molecules floating around in the atmosphere uh, will want to stick to surfaces if there's a surface nearby. So the way that these materials work is that you have a pore uh, made of, uh, because the pore is so small, you've got two surfaces that are very close together. And so instead of the gas molecule being attracted to, to one surface of the pore, for example, the the, the bottom of, or the floor of the pore, then it's also attracted to the, the roof of the pore at the same time. And so, so you've got a much stronger uh, impetus for the gas molecules to be inside the, the porous material where it benefits from all of these, these inter interactions between the molecules. Um, and, and so it prefers to be inside the pores than, than floating around outside. So it's, it's purely down to the, the interaction between the molecules and the surface of these materials. And if I now imagine hydrogen being within a nanoporous material, what is stopping the hydrogen just floating out of the nanoporous and being replaced by oxygen? Because I guess there's also or, or there's air around the nanoporous material. So what is forcing the hydrogen to go inside the nanoporous material rather than the air uh, around it? So the, the thing that makes certain materials more attractive to, for example, hydrogen than oxygen, that's down to the, the size and the shape of the pores. So if you have a pore that is only big enough to accommodate a hydrogen molecule, 
um, which is smaller than, than say an oxygen or a methane or, or any other types of gases, then your, your material will, will only admit hydrogen. Uh, and so, so by tailoring your materials so that they have the right pore size and shape for a particular molecule, then you can get nanoporous materials that are selective for certain gases over others. Right. Okay. And so now, as part of your EPSRC fellowship, what is the, the research question that you have? Are you basically trying to optimize perhaps the structure of these nanoporous materials? Or what are you, what are you currently working on? So um, what I want to do is, uh, so you're, you're right in that if you have a, a porous material and you, you put it under certain conditions, then the hydrogen molecules will be able to escape again. And if you think about uh, hydrogen storage in a car, for example, it's going to go through a lot of different temperatures and, and, uh, and different conditions. And so it could become quite difficult in practical situations to keep the hydrogen inside your material. But if you make a, a smart composite material that has the ability to store the hydrogen, but also an ability to trap it um, once it's inside, then you do away with this dependence on, on maintaining a certain temperature or pressure to keep your hydrogen molecules happy inside your, uh, inside your material. So what I'm working on is materials that can, can trap the hydrogen gas and release them on demand using uh, different external stimulus. Mm. And the external stimulus comes from, so I guess a composite material is always the combination of two different materials. And so are you taking this nanoporous material and then adding layers, let's say, on the top and the bottom, and that acts as the external stimulus? Or what, what, is, the, what is the role of the second material in this composite? So the, the matrix material that, that is uh, incorporated with the nanoporous material, so that, that could be a top or a bottom layer uh, that prevents gas from, from going in or, or coming out of your, of your material. But the idea is that, that that additional material will be able to be triggered by, for example, light or heat or magnetic field so that, that you can change the conformation and, and release gas when you want it. But that we're, we're going to be exploring a, a number of different ways of fabricating these composites to try and optimize the, the trapping ability. Because hydrogen is, is really the hardest molecule that, that you could ever hope to contain. Mm -hmm. And so there are uh, significant research challenges in, uh, in building a composite uh, like this, but yeah, we're going to, to crack it within the fellowship, I hope. Right, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that would be great. So, so you said, so the, the second material could also just be integrated within the nanoporous material. If I imagine this nanoporous sponge it could also just be a second material inside the sponge. It doesn't have to yeah. be external to it. Yeah, yeah, right? it could be, okay. but it would have to be quite small. It has to be quite small. Okay, fair <laughs> yeah, enough. Yeah, remember how small these pores are. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. But yeah that could be an option. Yeah. And so um, as part of, of course, your, your research has a very broad applications. We talked about car chassis before, and I'm sure there's general hydrogen storage uh, applications, but in terms of the aerospace industry, what would you envision possible impact scenarios to look like? Well, one of the, um, the easiest answers to this is in space travel, because uh, so hydrogen is already used as a, a, a propellant for rockets, um, because it, it does have this, this high uh, energy to mass ratio. 
and so um, by by being able to uh, to store hydrogen more effectively from uh, from renewable sources, it could make uh, things like like space tra travel or rocket propulsion cheaper. Um, but the other aspect is that at the moment we we don't have a good replacement for uh, jet fuels. So so liquid uh, jet fuels on planes are still highly polluting and they're a, um, a non-renewable resource. And so if we can uh, find ways to be able to, to use hydrogen or hydrogen fuel blends on board uh, airplanes, then suddenly you're, you're extending the longevity of, uh, of the aerospace industry in terms of, of uh, aviation fuels. So you can make planes that are, are less polluting and uh, and hopefully more efficient. Right, and, and so in terms of the, the engineering application, how, so you talked about the, the manufacturing challenge as well in terms of your, your research question. How do you envision this technology gets scaled up? Because I can imagine that if you're trying to manufacture something on the nanoscale, then by the time that you have enough material to have a micro or then kind of macro scale structure, that that takes quite a lot of time. So how will this technology scale up to larger structures? Well, we're very lucky in that the, the nanoscale structures occurred mostly by self-assembly. So a lot of these materials will spontaneously form if you put the right components together. Uh, things like nanoporous activated carbons are made on the large scale already. So it, it's just by controlling the, um, the, the temperatures and the gases that you flow through when you're, you're carbonizing your, your feedstock materials, that's how you, you create your nanoporous uh, structure in your materials. So these can be scaled up um, readily and, and cheaply as well in the case of the activated carbons. So, uh, so scaling up shouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have one final question about um, hydrogen storage, perhaps, as you said, about a rocket structure. One of the big problems, even for the space shuttle, was is that you had these big hydrogen tanks. And hydrogen is great as a jet fuel, or, uh, but one of the problems is, is that it's not very dense, so you need these big rocket tanks. Can you use these nanoporous materials to perhaps increase the density of the hydrogen, or is that something entirely different? No, that's, that is exactly what they're used for. So, for example, some of our work, we've been looking um, at using quite complex techniques like uh, neutron scattering to be able to look at the hydrogen inside these porous materials. And what happens is that because the hydrogen prefers to be inside these tiny pores, you get extreme densification of the hydrogen. So uh, you get over a thousand times oh, wow. more hydrogen inside the pores than you would uh, if you were trying to store it as a gas inside a canister, for example. So that that is why we use the nanoporous materials because you can get extremely high densities that you wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve. All right. So well, that's that's really fascinating because then you could basically going back to the multifunctional side, you could have a material which resists load, which is basically what you need in a rocket shell, and it has the additional advantage that it could store hydrogen at a thousand times greater densities so and needs a thousand times less volume than a current big big rocket shell, which is part of the big problem because it's very expensive to make one of these big rocket shells. So yeah, that, that's a really fascinating uh, uh, application. Is, is work currently ongoing in trying to uh, extend that idea a bit further? Uh, 
Well, my, my target at the moment is uh, onboard storage uh, on terrestrial vehicles, so, so uh, cars at the moment, because that is the, uh, the, the place where we're using most fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also a, a very technically challenging uh, target, uh, like being able to, to store enough energy in a small enough volume to be able to efficiently carry it around on millions of vehicles. So any advances that we make in that area um, should be able to be applied in uh, in space travel and also um, in aerospace. So yeah, we're hoping it could have large positive impacts. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds really great. Yeah, so um, it's been a really fascinating conversation, Valeska. Where would you like our listeners to find out a bit about about yourself or about your research? Where can they find you online? Um, <laughs> I guess my name is quite easy to Google. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I don't think there are many Valeska Tings out there. Um, but there, are, there's also some um, some talks on the faculty website that we've recorded for um, uh, the faculty showcase. Uh, and also, yeah, just just online, there are lots of lots of um, talks on uh, what I do. But also, there are a lot of other people doing exciting work on hydrogen storage. So. I just urge them to go look for some some interesting videos and see what they find. Yeah, I can definitely recommend that because there are some very interesting videos <laughs> of you on YouTube, and I'm sure you can probably go down a rabbit hole with looking at all what other other researchers are doing as well. So I highly recommend <laughs> that. Yeah, so thank you very much for having the conversation, Valeska. And uh, yeah, you have the final word. No, thank you. It's been a lot of fun um, talking about the research, and I hope it's it's helped to inspire a few people. Hi. One last thing before you head off. If you want to learn more about the topics that Valeska and I discussed, including the videos we mentioned in the conversation, then you can find show notes at aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. There you'll also find more information on our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and the World Leading Materials Technology Conference that SAMPI is organizing in Long Beach, California. And just as a quick reminder, if you can spare a minute, I would be super grateful if you could tell me on Apple Podcasts how you're liking the show. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.